In ancient Greece, it was known as the kind of great gathering of the nation. It was an event held only once every four years, but this classic festival of sport uh, became the central focus, uh, one of the most important and and favored events that uh, showcased kind of the power and the pageantry of this ancient Greek culture. They were called the Olympic Games, and as many of you might be aware, this summer, which went too quick for me, how about you? can't believe we're back in school. But this summer, our own nation hosted 16 days of glory, 172 hours of national and worldwide television, focusing on heroes from all over the world, Dan O'Brien and Shannon Miller and Carrie Strug, of course, our littlest daughter's taking gymnastics, and she thinks the ending vault is like this, you know? (laughs) We'll get it down. We'll get it down. They were heroes. These gold medalists showed us a little bit about courage and perseverance. Uh, Did some of you see that vault with Carrie Strug at the end? Man, I was a wreck. I was just like, come on, you know? I regress. Something happens in those games. I mean... You know you regress when you're watching the McDonald's commercial. You see the little kid running, that one? I'm like in tears. What is this about? I mean, (laughs) wimp, I have lost it. But these gold medalists showed us a lot about courage and perseverance and guts and hanging in there. And they have a lot to say to us about the Christian life because, as you know, the scriptures are filled with athletic metaphors that kind of courage and perseverance and stamina. But I think the thing that marked these gold medalists out is that when they went to Atlanta, they went with a certain posture and an attitude. They went to win. They went to Atlanta to win. Not just to have fun, to win. I enjoyed seeing some of the ads that weren't as emotional, like that McDonald's one. Did you see the Nike one? It had Andre Agassi kind of with a black hood and kind of a mean face slamming the ball. Then you hear a voiceover in the ad, and it says this. If you didn't come to win, and then these bold letters come on the screen. You're a tourist. If you didn't come to win, you're a tourist. Have you ever thought about the metaphors that says about the Christian life? You know, we're called to be winners, to win people to Christ. And if you didn't come to win, guess what? You're a tourist. And this is no spectator faith. This is an active, visceral faith where we're to be winners. There's another Nike ad in print in Newsweek. And time said this, and I liked it as well. If you can't stand the heat, get out of Atlanta. Have you ever wanted to say that to someone in the faith? I've wanted to say it to my church. We all just say it here because, you know, it's a little too hardcore. But sometimes I want to say to people, not for those that are new and graciously starting the process, but those of us who've been walking with the Lord for a while and we're kind of just dinking around, Like, if you can't stand the heat, man, get out of Atlanta. You're ruining our testimony. We've got a world to win. Today's passage in 1 Corinthians 9 is probably familiar to many of you. But what may not be as familiar is some of the background that Paul assumes you understand. 
I want to make sure you understand it too. The Olympic Games were classy games, people. They weren't like those Roman gladiator brutal matches. These games were classy. No fees were allowed. No disruptions were allowed. They were top-notch, cream-of-the-crop kind of events. The games were very popular. They were attended by the masses. Every colony of Greece attended these games. And the games were very important. Very, very important. In fact, the Olympic Games were deemed, when they were held, the sacred months. And many of their events were dated from the Olympic Games. And there was an agreement among all the countries and nations of the world that if a war was in progress, they would lay their arms down right where they were, attend the games, and then come back and pick it up. Now, isn't that cordial? I mean, that would be wonderful today. These games were very important. Now, these games were important to me, too. I was a 12-year-old boy back in 1972 when this particular figure captured my little adolescent transition to adulthood. Mark Spitz, the winner of seven Olympic golds. I mean, when he started drinking milk, you wouldn't believe how many gallons I guzzled. He was a hero for me. And then at the ripe age of 16, as I moved into my passage of manhood somewhat, this particular figure captured my mind. Bruce Jenner in Montreal, the decathlon champion. These two men, even for my little life, my little insignificant American modality here, they became important to me. And they started me on an Olympic quest of my own. In fact, I received a crate of items from my mom recently, like, clear these out or throw them away. And I found this letter in there. It's on United States Olympic Committee stationery, dated January 19, 1977. Dear David, it's heartwarming to know that you're such an enthusiastic Olympic admirer. Thank you for your kind congratulations on the 1976 Olympic Games in Montreal. Now, what did I do? Write these people? <laughs> I'm like, hello, I'm so excited about the Olympics, I just wanted to write you and say, good job, thank you. <laughs> it goes on to say, in answer to your many questions about the Olympic Games, I've included several pamphlets and papers which should answer those questions about the worldwide Olympic movement. I've forgotten I've even, I even wrote this, but at that young age, I was like caught up. I made even a vow when I was a young boy to try to attend every Olympic venue. And even at this point in my life, I think I've attended perhaps 16 of the 24 modern Olympic venues from Athens, Paris, London, Amsterdam, Berlin, Helsinki, Rome, Tokyo, Mexico City, Munich, Moscow, Barcelona, and Los Angeles because I was captured by the Olympic movement. I wanted to be where the winners won. I wanted to run the stadiums and the track. I wanted to see it all. Of course, when the games came to uh, L.A. in 84, did any of you attend? Were any of you born then? What's going on here? <laughs> Come on, don't date me now. I got tickets to the closing ceremonies. We put in for a lottery. Man, I just could not believe it. I got two tickets. I wrapped one and gave it to my dad for Christmas. That's the first time in a long time I saw my dad cry. And I knew he had the same disease I had, you know, that Olympic fever. We got to the stadium. I had two American flags for my dad. He wouldn't carry it. I carried it for him. You know, he was too proud. And then we got in there, and they gave us flashlights. 
because in the closing ceremonies, there was a time where you brought your flashlight out and had color little lenses you put on. I was a small child. I'm like, ah. they had a spaceship come over. I'm like, oh my gosh, Dad, look at this. He's like, I don't know you, okay? You're not, you don't have the same genes I have. I was captured by the Olympics. I love the Olympics. It's a time to see the nations come together and see hard work pay off and winners. But if you think I loved them, you don't know ancient Greece. They were captured by these games. I mean, this was life and blood. No MTV, no amusement parks, just the game. Paul assumes that you understand how important these games are, and he assumes that you have a mental map of the games. I'm not going to assume that. I'm going to try to help you get that mental map in your mind. In the ancient world, they knew the venues. They knew the gym, the gymnasio. This is where the Olympic athletes would train. They'd have to leave their families for at least 10 months, and they'd be put under the Helenodoci, the 10 professional coaches that would monitor their sleep, their diet, when they could move, when they couldn't move, who they could see, and when they could see them. Do you have that in your mind? The gym. Because when you read scripture, it's going to assume that you picture the gym. You're going to hear Paul say to Timothy, bodily discipline is good. We've seen it in the gymnasio. But spiritual discipline is better, not only for this life, but the life to come. And they would have just gone, I can suck that up. They saw that gym. From the gym, the athletes would make their way up to the temple. Of course, in Corinth, it was Jupiter. In Athens, on Olympia, it was the temple of Zeus. And it was at the temple that the athletes would take their oath with the coaches and other male figures in their life, other athletes, fathers, brothers. They would slaughter a pig, and they'd have quite a little pageantry up there. But ultimately, they would take an oath, and a crier would say, if you know any unrighteousness, in the lives of these men, say it now, because they will be disqualified from these games. You had to live moral lives to compete in the Olympics back then. The scriptures assume you can picture the temple. It assumes that when it says, if a man does not live or run according to the rules, he cannot win the prize. You know this passage? It assumes you know the temple. It's alluding to that oath. You don't stay within the fair guidelines of the rules, you're out. No gold. You don't live according to the word of God, you're out. It won't count. The inerrant, authoritative word is our blueprint, and we need to stay within that if we want the gold. From the temple, the athletes would make their way down to what was called the stripping room. This is where they'd take off all their clothing. Of course, the Olympic athletes back then competed in nothing, no matter what the sport. Of course, they admired the body and anatomy. And they would kind of shave their bodies like Olympic swimmers do today. All that hindered needed to go for them. It didn't help, it hindered. Of course, in the Mediterranean, they had a lot of olive trees, so they'd take that olive oil and sleek their bodies like kind of bodybuilders do today and look sleek. Hopefully, because when they were running, if they would kind of skim another runner, they would kind of just bounce off. They wouldn't get entangled and tripped up and lose all their effort. And the writer of Hebrews assumes you know this. Lay aside every encumbrance and sin. Get in the stripping room. And that sin which so easily entangles you and run the race that's set before you. It assumes you know that there's a stripping room and there's a time and place to take it all off and to run sleek and smooth. 
And in the Christian life, there's a time to kind of look at our lives and say, gosh, do I have a lot of baggage. We cleaned my beautiful wife. By the way, I married way over my head. You know God is blessed when you see someone's wife. But we cleaned our garage last night. Where did we get this stuff? I mean, if any of you need anything, let me know afterwards. I'm sure we have it somewhere. We need to, like, simplify and strip down our lives. Sometimes I look at my schedule. It's too full. It's an encumbrance to my walk with the Lord. So they had that mental map, the gym, the temple, the stripping room, of course, the stadium, which had about 40,000 fans in the old days. That's a lot of people back then. And the writer of Hebrews assumes you can see that great cloud of witnesses, and they're like a metaphor cheering us on in the race, men of faith and women of faith. It assumes you can see the track. There are no lane lines. There aren't just eight runners. There are as many as 20 and sometimes 30 runners in what was like beach sand. It assumes you can see the pole at the end. In the ancient games, they'd have a pole. There was sort of a finish line drawn in the sand, but the pole was the real issue. And the writer of Hebrews assumes you can see that pole because it says when you're running, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And he's saying, I know what you're already thinking. You're thinking the pole. Those runners don't run haphazardly. They look at the pole and they aim for the pole. And he says, take the pole out. Put Jesus there. Just put Jesus. He's your pole. Fix your eyes on him when you're running the Christian life. Just a great metaphor. Of course, after they crossed, they'd take the winners and go to what's called the Bema Seat, the awards platform. And how many analogies do we have in Scripture of this, right? I fought the good fight. I finished the course. And there's laid up for me a crown. See, crowns, not like a royal crown of gold, like laurel leaves, olive leaves. These athletes got these crowns, these wreaths. And so I paint that background just so as we go into 1 Corinthians 9, you know that this writer is assuming, Paul is assuming that you have a mental picture of the gym, of the temple, of the stripping room, of the stadium, of the track, of the pole, of the bema seat, so he can exhort us appropriately to love, to good works, to moving on in our faith. Corinth, as you know, had its own games called the Isthmian Games, just a little few miles from Athens, where they had, of course, the Olympic Games. I'm assuming this passage takes place in about A.D. 51, which is where Paul, I believed, which, what was his job? Tent maker, right? Where do you think all these people came who came to these Olympic Games, these Isthmian Games? Think they stayed at the Hyatt, the Marriott, the Holiday Inn? No, they stayed in tents. I have an idea that Paul was making the most of this opportunity. Talk about, you know, pin collecting. He was out there swapping pins and building tents and kind of sharing his faith. I believe it. And then he writes the church at Corinth, if you have your sword, in 1 Corinthians 9. And he starts in verse 24, and we're just going to do three or so verses. He kind of outlines, again, this, this way to win, this path to the prize, this course to the crown. He says in verse 24, Do you not know, and of course there probably is a little sarcasm here, he knows they have this mental map in their mind. He's really saying, you know, as you know, 
as is obvious to everyone who participates, they had the mental map. Can you picture the Space Shuttle Challenger exploding? Some of you probably can. Some of you probably can picture JFK's assassination even though you didn't live then. You've seen it. It's etched into the American script. Some of you can see faces of people reacting to the O.J. Simpson trial. It's now etched into the American conscience. Paul knows the Olympic Games were etched into their mind. Don't you know, really sarcastically, as you know, as is obvious, as every loyal citizen is aware, and then he goes on, that those who run in a race all run. Those athletes, those contestants who run or compete or participate in the stadium, in the stadium, in the race, and by the way, the stadium wasn't circular back then. It was 606 feet 9 inches long. That is the length of at least two football fields. And it was one shot to the pole. They all run. Don't miss that either. None of them are walking. None of them are skipping. None of them are taking their time. They all run. But then it goes on to say something very, very powerful. All run, but only one receives the prize. Only one gets first place, in other words. Only one will get the wreath, the gold, the medal. Therefore, run in such a way or a manner, run with a mode that you may, what's your translation say? Win or triumph or conquer or succeed. Run to win. In the Christian life, if you didn't come to win, you're a tourist. Paul says, run to win. Now, Baron de Coupertine, the founder of the modern Olympic Games, wrote the Olympic Creed, and it says this. The most important thing in the Olympic Games is not to win, not to win, but to take part. Just as the most important thing in life is not the triumph, but the struggle, the essential thing is not to have conquered, but to have fought well. Now, to Barron's credit, in a world of hatred and division, malice and evil and terrorism, this is a fitting Olympic creed for our modern games. The goal isn't to win, it's to take part. But Paul says, you know what, in the Christian life it's different. Because one, we're not winning over other people, we're trying to win people. And we're not trying to beat anyone, we're trying to beat ourselves. And he's going to go on and illustrate that. And so the goal isn't just to like have a fun festival in the Christian life. Enjoy your chapels, find a local church, and just enjoy it. He says, no, no, we have a mission, people. The goal is to win in our games. Now he goes on to elucidate that. The context is always important. Look at some of the verses before verse 24 where we started. Perhaps start in verse 19. He talks about this metaphor of winning. And you're going to see here, it has a lot to do with not beating other people, but actually winning other people. He says in verse 19, For though I am a free man, or free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all that I might, what? Win as many as possible. Verse 20, And to the Jews I became a Jew, that I might 
win Jews to those that are under the law. I became like one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those that are under the law. To those who are without the law, I became like one not having the law, though I not being with the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those who are without the law. Verse 22, to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all men, that I may by all possible means save some. In verse 23, and I do this all and all things for the sake of the gospel, that I may become a fellow partaker of it. I may, in other words, share in its blessings. See, the context is, Paul says, you see the Olympic Games. You've got the mental map etched into your brain. You know how hard these people work for a wreath. You in the Christian life are to work that hard too, to discipline yourself, to live according to the rules, to compete fairly, to be grounded in the word. But also, he says, there's another way to apply the word win, and that has to do with people. Get other people in the race. I love sharing my faith. I just love it. I think partly because I didn't grow up in a Christian home here. I attended a basketball camp, I think I was six, with Pete Reese in this very gym. I didn't know the Lord. Pete Reese had an influence in my life. He started to plant seeds. And gratefully, later in my life, I got it, or it got me, is probably more accurate. And now everywhere I go, whether wrestling with Steve, you know, I had to get Steve on our team because, you know, I'm like, we're a young church, we're trying to plant something, bro, I need you, sorry. Nothing against other churches, but the Lord has called you right now. <laughs> Don't want to be pushy. He's a great asset. When we ref together, you know, watch out. Watch out. People see us with our striped shirts on. They think we're coming to call the game. We're coming to call life, too. And if you're standing around in the locker room after the game, you're a target, man. So how you doing, bro? You have any spiritual background? Oh, you do. Has anyone shared with you how you can know Jesus Christ personally? They have? Would you like to? Yes. And then I have kind of that same response all the time. You would? Oh, okay, well, great. <laughs> I didn't get those responses earlier, but I wasn't that available to the Lord. I think the Lord knows I'm more available now, so he already prepares people. So it's not uncommon that people go, yes, I've been waiting to hear something. And it happens in the gym and Vons and everywhere, and I try to be tactful and gracious and non-condemning and tiptoe and, and just like I needed. You know, I needed kind of soft-pedaled at first. But... Most people's lives, quite frankly, aren't going anywhere. They're hurting. And they're open to something about life and hope and peace and joy. I am. He goes on in the verse, in verse 25, and he says, Everyone who competes. Now, this is just a fabulous, fabulous word. Everyone who agons. Where do you think, what English word do we get from that? Agony. Everyone who agons in the games exercises in kresia, self-control in all things. This could be translated, they go into strict training or serious discipline. In other words, they train hard to deal with their inner life and get it under control. Self-control, as you know, is a fruit of the Spirit, right? Everyone who agonizes in these games exercises self-control. The sacrifice, these Olympic athletes 
shared about were unbelievable in Atlanta. Those little bios that NBC gave us were fabulous. And there are bios like that of people in the Christian life that are fabulous. The way they've sacrificed financially and time and relationally for the kingdom. Nike had another ad, of course. I, I like them all, but uh, some of these are good. Nike's a shoe company, it says. Excuse me, an athletic shoe company. We make shoes for athletes. Come to think of it, we make a ton of stuff for athletes. Some of it's pretty good. A lot of it's pretty great. And we're always trying to figure out how to make it a little better because most of the athletes we know have a hard time settling for second best. Isn't that great? Don't you love to hear that in our churches? We're going to do things with excellence, people, because a lot of the Christians we know don't like settling for second best. We're out here to win, and we're going to do it right, and we're going to do it well. They have another one that's really kind of fun. I doubt if you can see it, but it has a marathoner on the on the picture, and he's kind of bent over throwing up. So just a, a picture you'd want to see. I should have had this blown up for you. It's just so graphic. The top, it says, if you can't stand the heat, get out of Atlanta. But then in small print at the bottom, it says, right after Bob Companion qualified for the marathon, he crossed the finish line and puked all over his Nike running shoes. We can't tell you how proud we were. <laughs> Unfortunately, his moment of glory was cut short when the networks took the cameras off him. Why? Did he offend the commercial sponsors? Was it too detrimental to the ratings? Was it all just a little too intense, a little too 3D? Well, tough. They really want to support athletes. They really want to be a part of the experience. They can't just turn up for the photo opportunities and the media events and smile their little mug for the cameras. They've got to accept the whole enchilada. And it's a spitting, sweating, blister-breaking enchilada with extra cramps. Get used to it. <laughs> this is going to be the new flyer for our church. I think it's marvelous with me on the cover just throwing up all over the place. You want to be a part of our team? We've got a world to win. There's 50 wonderful churches in this valley, and I know most of the pastors personally having grown up here, and they're marvelous. It's amazing what God is doing here. It's not enough, though. We planted a church just a couple weeks ago, though we've been working on it for a while, because I have a heart to get out there and reach all these people who don't know Christ. You know there are thousands, hundreds of thousands of them in this very valley who don't know Christ, and they would love someone to share it in a relevant, simple, understandable way. But once they get in, we're going to be as honest as we can be. The Christian life is a lot like this. And when you come on our team, as much as we want to kind of take it as easy and smoothly as we can, we don't want to be offensive, we want to be tactful, the message is the message, people. Life is hard, period. And in the Christian life, it's a blister-breaking, sweating enchilada with extra cramps. And I'll bet some of you have a few of those already. He goes on and says, everyone who competes in these games exercises self-control. They agonize, but he gives now a marvelous contrast. And don't miss this contrast because he's banking everything on it. They then do it to receive a perishable 
wreath, a corruptible, fading, temporal wreath. They give all that effort, we saw in Atlanta, for a gold medal. Back then they did it for olive branches that fade. Any of you have a boutonniere that you've saved or a corsage over time? That is their glory. I would have brought a picture of a boutonniere, but I'm in a blue polyester leisure suit, and it's very humiliating. <laughs> what were we thinking back then? We are so much more on the ball than we were when I grew up. Their boutonnieres, their wreaths faded. Ours doesn't. It's imperishable. Now, some of you probably have wonderful little boxes like this, probably the exact same color, red, you know, little check box that has all your little wonderful awards. Cub Scout badge, what do you think? Powerful. Winter formal court, little bill folder, nice. Let's see. All-Stars 1974 baseball, what do you think? How much time do I have? Because I think all these are very important to share. <laughs> CSF, huh? All those hardworking grades? I guess I'm glad I really killed myself for that. <laughs> Should be wearing this little basketball patch. That was a whole season of hard work, and that's what I came up with. You know, you've got your treasures, right? Be the very best. I want it all. No time for less. I've laid my plans. Now lay the chance here in my hands. Give me one moment in time when I'm more than I thought I could be, when all of my dreams are heartbeat away and the answers are all up to me. Give me one moment in time when I'm racing with destiny, then in that one moment in time, I will feel, I will feel, don't miss it now, eternity. Carrie Strug, going for that last vault. She's going down, you're biting your nails, your knees are knocking, you're caught up, you're sweating. Well, that's me, but you're participating, right? And she lands it. Ooh, oh, ooh, ooh, and then down on the knees. Were you just like, ah, <gasps> you know, we've got children in the house, be changed. In that one moment, did you not feel it? Just a, oh my gosh. And then it was over. Eternity, the Christian life, is longer than one moment, people. I'm not living for one Carrie Strug moment. We will have that, <gasps> the love, the hope, the peace we have, the joy for all eternity. People are hurting in this valley. Divorces are rampaging all over this valley. People are broken. And they're trying to get one moment of feeling good. And they're going to sources that are horrible for them. And we have it for all eternity. We live for the imperishable, not one moment, one whole life.
And therefore, he says in verse 26, here's his kind of concluding charge. Therefore, I, and do you like that? I do. Paul emphatically puts himself in there. I run in such a way is not without aim. I box in such a way is not just beating the air and flailing about. But I buffet my body and make it my slave. I'm sorry for you Sizzler fans, that is not buffet. I know, I read that the first time too. You buffet your body, that's fabulous. Hometown buffet, let's go. <laughs> Occasionally I read into the text, you know, I don't do my good hard work exegesis, and I read buffet and then we go eat. But this morning it is buffet. It means to make your body black and blue, to train it, to put it under severe discipline and make it your slave, your master. Train it to do what it ought to do to win. Lest possibly, he concludes, after I've preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. In ancient Greece, the Olympic Games were known as the great gathering of the nation. And though they were held only once every four years, they were the central focus. They were the key event for these people. They were what they lived for. And every Greek citizen could picture that entire spectrum of events from the gymnasio, training hard. How are you doing in the Christian life? Are you training hard? They could picture the temple, taking the oath that they would compete according to the rules. How are you doing with God's word? Are you living according to the rules? They could picture that stripping room visually. They knew those athletes would take anything off. They would shave even a little hair if they thought it would slow them down in the race. How are you doing with simplifying your life and streamlining yourself? so that you're effective for the kingdom of God. And they could picture the stadium and the crowds and the track and the pillar. How are you doing with the pillar? Are you fixing your eyes on our pillar, Jesus, and making him your focus? Are you going to finish strong? I know you're much more mature than the students I work with at Biola. Bless their hearts. Please pray for them. But some of them won't finish. They're there because their mom and dad want them there, and they're somewhat into this Christian movement. But they haven't been captured yet. And my prayer is that they finish, people. Get to the end. Cross the line with us. And pick up the gold that's waiting for you. Because our Heavenly Father, our Lord, is ready to say, well done, good and faithful athlete, servant. Enter the joy. Enter the joy. Dan O'Brien and Michael Johnson and Terry Strug and Shannon Miller and everyone else was a wonderful inspiration for me. But your lives can be even more inspiring because what you do for Christ is going to last for all eternity. And you won't get a gymnastics little tour around the U.S., but you're going to get something much more special and something much more significant if you follow the Lord. It's been my privilege... And it's been my great honor to be with you today. It's, 
a thrill for me to be with uh, Steve and his wonderful wife, Glory. And some of you have even attended our church, even though we've had two Sundays at 9 and 10.30. Hopefully we'll go to three services and four and we'll keep jamming them. But if God hasn't found a place for you in this valley, come visit us. But if you come, be very clear. If you don't come to win, in our church you're a tourist. There are already 50 wonderful churches in town where you can go that are bigger and better and have fuller services. We need athletes. We're small and we want to grow. We want to sweat. We want to work hard. And by the way, we're not going to develop a little Christian club. Not yet. Because we're running for more than sports, we're running for souls. We're not just here to win a prize, we're here to win people. And as they say, if you can't stand the heat, well, get out of Atlanta. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for an opportunity to be with you, to hear from your word, and thanks for using an illustration that is so easy to understand an athletic metaphor about Olympic games, and we can picture athletes and what they'll give up for the prize. My prayer and challenge is that we, too, will make those willing sacrifices to run the race for you, to buffet our own lives, to train our own lives, that we are holy and acceptable objects of worship for you, and that we, too, would run the race to win souls, lives, people who need to know you. No tourists here, Lord. We've come to win. Amen.